California Congressman Ro Khanna says Medicare Advantage is just private insurance that profits by denying coverage. He recently introduced legislation to stop private insurers from using the word Medicare in plan names and advertising. As a third-term Silicon Valley-based progressive, Congressman Khanna focuses on democratizing the digital economy and advancing U.S. leadership on climate, human rights, and diplomacy around the globe. Welcome to Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. Welcome, Ro. And, and we look forward to exploring your ideas, not just on healthcare and Medicare, but your whole platform to in- integrate technology to help make the United States a more equitable and, frankly, growth company country that includes all of us. So welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Thank you, David. Congratulations on the success of the podcast. You get more streams than most members of Congress get, so I appreciate it. (laughs) No problem. I mean, I think the first question is, what's right about Medicare? Now, what's wrong with Medicare Advantage? Well, what's wrong with Medicare Advantage is that people who are signing up for it think they're getting Medicare, but there are critical differences. First, is they're in-network doctors and out-of-network doctors. That doesn't exist in Medicare. So if you have Medicare, you can basically go to any doctor, any hospital that you need. When you have Medicare Advantage, you're restricted. Second, Medicare Advantage, a lot of people sign up for it because it covers dental and vision. It's one of the reasons we need to expand that for Medicare. And a lot of times the premiums are cheaper uh, in the short term. But at the if you get a ca- catastrophic illness, Uh, many people then face uh, huge costs and sometimes even denial of benefits. And this has been uh, documented. And then third, of course, it's costing the United States taxpayers a lot more money because uh, the New York Times had a whole story about how uh, people are being categorized as sicker than they actually are. uh, And these private companies are making money off it. So Mark Pocane and I just said, if if you want to provide that, that's fine, but don't call it Medicare. It's something totally different. So what do you think the prospects are, Ro, of, of, of renaming the, the, the program? Because that would uh, uh, there's an enormous brand value in Medicare. The prospects are uh, probably not great, given that the uh, insurance companies will fight hard. But it should give us a signal. If the private insurance companies are fighting so hard to be called Medicare, it's probably not that bad of politics to have Medicare for everyone. I mean, they've probably spent money, millions of dollars on market research And guess what they found out? People like Medicare. That's why they want to be called Medicare. So the idea that we should give everyone Medicare in this country uh, with having supplemental private insurance, by the way, so you're not eliminating private insurance. You still have supplemental private insurance, but everyone has basic Medicare. uh, Seems to me uh, a very logical thing that the country should do. And we should get there by extending to 60, 55, 50, uh, and so so on uh, until we can get uh, universal coverage. Uh, Medicare for all was a big topic during the uh, Democratic primary, presidential primary last time around, and then it sort of faded from discussion. Do you see it having legs and Medicare for all is something that, that kind of comes back at some point as a, a real kind of point of policy? I do, because we spend about 19% of our GDP on healthcare costs. This is a huge reason uh, that uh, American companies are competing with one arm tied behind their back. It in part led to some of the offshoring of our production. As Deaton and Case have written in Debts of Despair, it is one of the biggest causes for the stagnation of wages of the working class. If you look at the wage stagnation, almost all of it can be explained because the employers are 
paying that money into health insurance. GE's CEO famously said that he has to pay more in health care than he does in terms of buying the steel for uh, his products. Uh, and you have this case where they have massive uh, company CEOs managing healthcare companies as opposed to the companies that they're supposed to be running. So it's a huge competitive disadvantage for the United States, not to mention the personal cost and uh, the fact that we uh, should be treating people with dignity regardless of the job they have. Uh, so eventually, I think we will get there, but it's going to uh, take a lot more of political mobilization. Is there is there an argument though that the inflation that is really burdening the country and I and and honestly creating a competitive advantage isn't really being driven by the insurance companies it's the core inflation of a an incredible healthcare sector but that doesn't seem to be able to get its arms around its own costs while we still to your point leave a lot of people either undercovered or not covered at all I mean how do you get at that that core inflation that's kind of crushing uh, or, or sort of certainly putting a clamp on the competitive ability of our of our economy to grow and to kind of create jobs and profits. Well, I think it's complex. Obviously, the reasons for American costs being high. One of it, of course, is that we do have incredible innovation and the best healthcare. So I do want to acknowledge that that there is something that uh, has very high end uh, healthcare, even though those outcomes aren't the best for 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 everyone. Uh, but then you look at something like American sickness, where uh, it's documented that this is partly hospital costs, it's partly uh, the costs of pharmaceuticals, it's partly the insurance costs. At every step, uh, there are uh, costs in, in the system uh, that are leading us to pay uh, some of the highest uh, healthcare costs, uh, even though we don't have uh, the best medical outcomes on average. And so, uh, my view is that a Medicare for all system, it's not going to fix everything, but it will help drive some of those costs down. So Medicare obviously has a great brand name. It's also kind of pricey compared with Medicaid, uh, which is you know, a program for, for people with lower income. And I wonder whether there might be a better way to get to universal coverage might be through more of like a, a Medicaid for all, at least if that is sort of the floor uh, for, for universal coverage. That's a lot of what the expansion during the Affordable Care Act uh, relied on. And I wonder if that might be a better better one, even if the brand isn't as, uh, as sexy. Well, the advantage of Medicaid is that it covers long-term care. And a lot of times, as you know, if someone is unfortunately Alzheimer's or dementia, they end up bankrupting themselves on Medicare and then end up getting covered on Medicaid. And there are aspects of Medicaid that are attractive, but the reimbursement rates for Medicaid, I don't think are sustainable. Uh, so you would need to dramatically increase the uh, reimbursement rates. And there are a lot of doctors who uh, or, or take Medicaid only if they're required. But uh, uh, you're, I, I don't think that it's a, a sustainable thing just on, uh, on reimbursement. Whereas Medicare, many doctors are perfectly happy to take Medicare. Now, we have to be candid. Like, you know, you're talking to hospitals. Uh, much of the money they're making is still on the private insurance. The Medicare rates aren't sufficient to, to, to pay for all the profits. A lot of it comes from the private insurance. Some of that would be reduced because of Medicare negotiation, but we have to have a conversation about where the Medicare reimbursement rates are uh, to make it at uh, universal. Yeah, it would be really it would be really hard today, you know, sitting on one of the hospital boards to 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 trade that system where so much of the profitability is coming from the private side. But I wanted to just double click on David's idea. I know you're not crazy about 
uh, managed Medicare and, and, and MA, but is there a possible solution to extend the coverage we need for the underinsured and maybe to take some version of that Medicare managed care and extend it more into the employer space where, where there are still a lot of gaps in the system where people are are hitting the system who are un, un, under or underinsured or not insured at all. Is there a compromise opportunity there, Ro? Or do you think there's just too much you don't like about the managed care system that those parties, because that strikes me that that might be a platform that you could extend to cover and avoid those. I mean, you, you, you brought up the the Deaton and Case data, it's pretty terrifying how many deaths of despair there are. And some of them are with people who are never get treatment because they, 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 they still don't have coverage. They're individuals or in small businesses or they're underinsured. Uh, and is there, a, is there a possible compromise solution where you leverage managed care and get, as, as part of the deal, get them to cover a lot of those folks who are currently undercovered today? One of the things that David and I have kicked back and forth is, is there a public-private partnership where you could extend some version of either the exchange plans, which are managed care for, for typically populations that look a lot like Medicaid populations, but are one tick up in terms of less risk, but also still very low income, or Medicare managed care, which is a richer benefit, but, but require those plans if they're going to participate in the Medicare in the post-65 world to start covering those other those other levels of folks who are currently underinsured in the fifty to sixty five, or in small business that are currently being overcharged, is there a way to take the program where there is some, you know, bipartisan support and extend it into areas where we actually insur- the insurance market isn't working very well? Yeah, but the question is, why not just then extend Medicare to them? I mean, I guess they what is the advantage? You're saying that you're you're going to require sort of the private companies that are managing. Uh, Medicare then to uh, make sure they're taking uh, patients who, who may be sick or may not have uh, coverage uh, and presumably uh, not charge them outra- outrageous premiums or deductibles. But isn't that just ult- ultimately the... Well, really, 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 the, the it's it's extending the idea of Obamacare to require the, a lot of those plans to, to file on the exchanges and then extend the exchanges. It would really be to take that idea that w- elements of which were Im- embedded initially in Obamacare and make it more of a requirement. Uh, to your point, the the Medicare Advantage market is a very rich market. It's where a lot of the mo- insurers are finding most of their growth. And while they're growing off of the off of the federal budget, is there a way to get them to actually extend more affordable coverage to other parts of the market? It's just, and, th- and that would be the idea. Sure. I mean, I think that, that would be progress. I mean, I, I I would support something like that in terms of. Uh, a legislation, if that was uh, uh, strengthening and building on uh, the Affordable Care Act. But I think uh, ultimately, both in terms of uh, a simplicity of an idea uh, and in terms of uh, uh, something that's going to have a lasting effect is what we ought to be doing is figuring out how do we uh, extend extend Medicare uh, as much as possible. So, well, if you hadn't already figured it out, John is quite fixated on healthcare, and it's sort of like a one-track mind, which I guess is good because we need help on it. But you do a lot of broader things as well, and I'd love to explore that a little bit, both in their relationship to healthcare and then and then overall. So, certainly on like the environment and climate has been a big area, you know, a focus for you. I understand as it you know related to the Inflation Reduction Act, fairly instrumental in keeping that alive those pieces in there where where do we stand from an environment and, and and climate standpoint is there is there cause for hope can congress do anything about it 
Well, I think President Biden deserves a lot of credit with the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, that's a massive win, $300 billion over 10 years, the largest climate investment in solar and wind and batteries. And the components for the clean energy economy, uh, we're going to really see a lot of clean manufacturing come back to the United States. Uh, and it's going to do a, take a significant dent on, on our emissions. So a lot of the implementation matters, uh, how the funding is distributed, uh, the planning and coordination on solar panels and the different phases of production. But I'm quite hopeful about the impact this bill is going to have. Just extending it back to some of your, your own ideas, Ro, one of the things I found really moving in your book was talking about the deindustrialized towns, not just in the Midwest, but in your own home state of Pennsylvania, and your real desire to kind of redistribute not money, but jobs and opportunity into a lot of those communities by leveraging technology. Do you see much progress for those projects? I mean, we've got the we've got an amazing Chips Act passed in terms of reinvesting in the U.S. I mean, is that is that a down payment on something we're going to see that's going to hopefully create more opportunity in those areas? Because uh, that that I think f- solving that problem I think is fundamental to changing the, the the political culture we've got right now of of fear. And uh, I think you 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 obviously felt it very personally in your own memoir and reflections there, and have and have been part of it in terms of the Endless Frontier Act and the Chips Act. I mean, where do you see that going? Well, I appreciate that, John. I uh, think we made a strategic mistake as a country to offshore a lot of our production. I mean, we didn't invent the automobile in America. We figured out the mass production. We didn't invent the jet engine. We figured out the mass production. Yet we invented the solar panel and the semiconductor, and we allowed the production to leave. Production is fundamentally tied to innovation, and by losing our manufacturing base in a way that Germany didn't, in a way that South Korea and China have not, uh, it has hurt the working class in America, it has hurt uh, factory towns and communities across the country, and there was no effort at place-based policy for economic revitalization. There are two opportunities. One, the 25 million new digital jobs, many of them that don't require a college degree, that pay twice the median average. These can be done from almost anywhere. You don't have to leave your hometown to be able to get one of these good paying jobs. And we should be intentional about doing that. And we're working, I'm working with Google to partner with community colleges, HBCUs, land grant institutions to pay people a stipend and then get a $65,000 job after an 18 month credential uh, where the private sector is involved in the uh, credentialing uh, to help solve that. But more broadly, we can bring new production back. We're uh, much more productive, uh, 90% more productive than uh, China because of 3D printing, because of digital technology. We're even more productive than Germany. And given this productivity advantage, given the new innovation processes, if we have surgical intervention uh, in financing uh, from the government to supplement private sector uh, financing and investment in the workforce, I think we can see new production come back to America across the country. And both of those things can build a more productive nation and help uh, heal some of the uh, divisions that are uh, exacerbated because of economics. Rose actually gone deep and geeking out on what what kind of investments and and, and tests we could actually create in deindustrialized or, or, or rural areas. But I guess I guess for me, what's interesting about that, Congressman, is your notion of that there's a there, there, there is there is hope for a progressive capitalism 
or a ca- or a capitalism that's progressive, whatever side of that you want to take. Do you want to make the argument for that? Because I think it's a pretty lonely hill you're preaching from. Well, I believe that there are two aspects of what I call progressive capitalism, uh, which is uh, the title of the paperback version of the book. But uh, let me say first, mar- look, the a value of markets so the deep down is the value of human freedom, right? I mean, we, imagine if the government made every decision, if the government uh, and the collective will made every decision. And now you're an entrepreneur, you're someone like Steve Jobs, or you have a small business, or you have a restaurant. Do you really have to subject any transaction you're doing, any interaction you're doing to the collective will of a community that would suppress your own freedom? So markets are the freedom to transact in our own ideas, our own uh, initiatives with other human beings. And that's something that worth celebrating. And that's why I celebrate uh, markets and free enterprise. But to participate in a market, how can you do that if you don't have health care? How can you do that if you don't have education? How can you do that if you don't have nutrition? How can you do that if you didn't uh, live in a safe community? So that's what I mean partly by progressive capitalism, that you have to have the investments in uh, your fundamental uh, development as a human being to participate in a in. Uh, in a, a market. Leroy, you talked about the importance of uh, freedom, how that works with various approaches. We're all concerned about our, the health of our democracy. And uh, some of us are sort of wringing our hands about what to do about it. You have specific proposal related to term limits, both in Congress and the Supreme Court as well. I'd just love to hear you know, your thoughts about that and how it ties in with the rest of your program and philosophy. Well, I appreciate that. I believe that the Supreme Court has been disconnected from the facts of American life. I mean, you have people on there who were on the court appointed 40, 50 years ago, uh, and they're unelected. Uh, That wasn't the founding intent. And so I have a proposal that says Supreme Court justices should serve no more than 18 years on the Supreme Court. They're still judges for life, tenured for life, uh, and uh, they can go to a lower court uh, but every president should get two appointments. This would depoliticize the court, and it would make the court more responsive uh, to individuals. I've also suggested 12 years for House members and, and senators, though I'm flexible on what uh, that duration should be. American democracy uh, depends upon uh, renewal, upon new voices emerging. Whether you adopt formal term limits or not, one of the challenges has been that new voices in this country have had a very hard time breaking through. Uh, we need to create, be more intentional in creating opportunities for young people. When I ran for uh, Congress, uh, the party endorsed against me all three times. The entire party was against me. One of the things I say about President Obama, because they say, well, why was he not more for the Democratic Party? Remember, the party was against Obama when he ran for Congress. They were against Obama when he ran for the Senate. They were against Obama when he ran for the presidency. They had lined up with Hillary Clinton. So it's the greatest talent of modern times had to fight the party three times for his ascent. Something is fundamentally broken, and the parties need to do a better job of getting next-generation folks uh, involved with our democracy. I'm glad I asked that question. It's one that we don't usually have a chance to talk about on uh, Care Talk. So I think we're going to wrap it up right there. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. If you liked what you heard or you didn't, please subscribe on your favorite service. 